Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close, I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm, the, I'm, the one. I'm Patrick Wade, your host of ITM, and listen, with the recent release from uh, Pentagon, Department of Defense showing a video that looks like a possible UFO, I decided to reach out to Stephen Greer to talk about his personal alien encounters and what he thinks about actual aliens, the existence of aliens. That's a lot of weird questions. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Dr. Greer, thanks for being a guest on Valuetainment. Love it. Thank you very much for having me. So you have an interesting background because some some talk about when you read your background, you see a lot of UFO stuff, but you know, you don't read a lot about you being a doctor in the emergency room, 80,000 patients. Can you kind of give us what you do for a living and what led you to want to study UFOs? Well, yes, I mean, I'm, on a, I'm a medical doctor, and uh, but when I was younger, uh, I had a sighting of a UFO and it coincided with my uncle designing what's called the lunar module, which is the thing that put the first man on the moon. Uh, Grumman, which is now Northrop Grumman, had the contract to design the machine that landed with Neil Armstrong. So I had an interest in space, and then I had a sighting, uh, not unlike what the Pentagon recently released, uh, where I grew up in North Carolina. And, of course, I knew immediately what I had seen was a very unusual object. So it ignited a lifelong interest in this, and uh, a whole lot of things evolved over time. My uncle retired, and over a period of a few years in the 90s, I began to uh, do further research and start an organization to go out and do reconnaissance of these UFOs and set up a set of protocols to make uh, some kind of interactive contact with them, and we did. And that was in uh, 1992, uh, that got on the radar scope of the intelligence community. Uh, the head of Army intelligence approached me and basically said, what the hell do you think you're doing? Uh, basically, we had cracked the Rosetta Stone uh, for communicating with these objects and their occupants. And it ended up on the front page of the Pensacola paper in March of 1992. And that kind of hit some red line buttons at the Pentagon and CIA. So I got contacted by those folks. Some of them were friendly to what we were trying to do. Some were hostile. But the ones who were friendly helped me build a network that now is around 980 military, corporate, aerospace mainly, uh, and intelligence officials who have information about these projects. And that led to me in 1993 briefing Bill Clinton's CIA director, R. James Woolsey, and a few other people, Senate Intelligence Committee members. And I was doing this as a doctor, sort of shuttling up from North Carolina, where I was chairman of emergency medicine at the hospital up to DC. So I, I, it sort of got organically sort of overtook my medical career, uh, but over a number of years. So I'm retired from emergency medicine now. I'm not in the ER. I'm working now to try to bring this information and more equally importantly, the technologies that are behind these uh, spacecraft and, and things that are being reported on CNN now, because what the public isn't being told is that we have in fact figured out how those objects operate. And that would give us an entirely new and advanced civilization where we would not need fossil fuels 
oil or gas or coal or nuclear power. So it's a very big story. Most people think the secrecy around this is because the government has just been incompetent. That's not true. That narrative is a false narrative. The true narrative is that, uh, I will quote from a top secret memo released uh, during uh, the past few decades, but it was dated 1951, and it stated that the subject was the most classified matter in the U.S. government exceeding the classification of the development of the hydrogen bomb, I'm quoting. So uh, that document, by the way, is up on our website, uh, SiriusDisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S Disclosure.com. So that this entire investigation that I started sort of as an interest when I was a, a young doctor eventually overtook my medical career, and now I'm, I'm sort of working full-time trying to get this information out to the public because it's very critical. In order for our civilization to move forward significantly, we're going to have to have something better than solar panels and windmills. Uh, and the good news is we have it. The bad news is there are sociopaths who are in super secret projects that don't want us to have it. And our civilization has been greatly harmed, not to mention our environment and biosphere. So a lot of people think this is about aliens. I said, no, it's not about ETs. It's about humans and how are humans going to get out of the conundrum we're in, which is a very serious problem and move forward as a civilization instead of sliding backwards. So going back to, you said a lot of different things. I just want to kind of uh, make it clear what it means. You said 980 military intelligence officials that give you information, AKA whistleblower, right? Is that a fair assessment to yes. say? And, and documents, for example, a lot of, of top secret documents. Um, in 1998, uh, my group uh, working with a constitutional attorney, Daniel Sheehan, that's in our new documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, uh, which is up on all the platforms now. He and I uh, looked at this issue. And if you have a minute to hear me out, what happened, I don't know if you can imagine the strange predicament a doctor is in, whose, of course, uncle was one of the pioneers in aerospace with Northrop Grumman working on the Apollo mission, to be asked to come up to Washington to brief the sitting CIA director as a civilian on a subject because the president and he were being denied access. Now, let me repeat this. The president of the United States and the director of the CIA were being denied. Now, I have a, a FedEx letter from the person setting up this meeting between me and the CIA director, Woolsey, that states that they had inquired about this subject, they knew there were programs going on, highly classified, and they were denied access to it. I didn't believe that could be true. I thought this is a bad John Le Carre novel. And when I got up to D.C. and met with the director of the CIA, uh, I realized nobody was joking, that this is absolutely true. And that's when I realized in December 1993 that our country, the Constitution, uh, the rule of law had completely run off the rails, at least in this specific area. And it was pretty much what Eisenhower, if you looked at the last speech Eisenhower made when he left office, when he said, beware the military-industrial complex, because it will become a threat if we're not careful to our democracy and our way of life. That was his farewell speech. And this is a five-star general, World War II hero, of course, um, and a Republican. And, and no one really understood why he made that as his last speech. Well, it turns out one of his 
military guys who worked with him the last couple years of his administration. I was an old guy that I got to know and was one of our disclosure project whistleblowers said, oh yeah, I was at the White House and Eisenhower had been pushed aside and had lost control of those projects. So I think this is the part of, of the story that people have a hard time in a sense, getting their minds around because we all grew up with our history lessons and our uh, civics lessons and the president is the commander in chief and blah, blah, blah. In reality, the emperor has no clothes and there are classified projects that go on, unfortunately, that are not supervised by the president or the Congress. So that led me with, with Daniel Sheehan to conclude that these projects were illegal a priori, they cannot claim the rule of law to suppress testimony and disclosure of the subject. So we concluded that we could go forward with top secret documents and witness testimony and put it out to the public. And that's what we have been doing. Uh, that's one part of the story. The more interesting part of the story actually isn't the governmental part. It's the fact that our team in the 90s and up till now had developed protocols where we could interact with these civilizations uh, and vector them into a site, like you would vector a jet into JFK Airport. And the movie Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is sort of a two-hour tour through what we've been doing and what the results have been. And it's for people who see it, it's sort of shocking uh, when they realize this. And what I tell people is that when you're dealing with civilizations and actually the CIA director's wife, who at the time was the chief operating officer of the National Academy of Sciences said uh, to, to me during our two or three hour meeting uh, with the CIA director, she turned to me, she said, how are these civilizations communicating across the vastness of interstellar space? Because the speed of light is too slow. And, and for people who aren't scientists on your viewership, let me explain. At the speed of light, to go 1% of the way across our own galaxy, the Milky Way, would take, it, which is a 1,000 light years, which is the distance light goes at 186,000 miles every second for a year. That's one light year. A 1,000 light years is 1% of the way across our galaxy, which is one galaxy amongst trillions. But at the speed of light for you to even communicate and say, hey, how are you doing? And to answer back, that would be the time since the birth of Christ, 2000 years for that transmission to happen with what you and I are using right now on electromagnetic signals. So we knew as scientists uh, and, and that there had to be something else that these civilizations were using. And what we discovered was that they have very, high, very sophisticated electronics and this is, of course, what Elon Musk at uh, Neuralink, he has a company called Neuralink, is, is working on, that interface with directed thought. Now, this is probably where I've lost half your audience. And they're going, what? And the reality is there's an area of what's called the science of consciousness, field consciousness, where at Princeton with Dr. John, who is an engineering professor, discovered that he could set up a technology, a random number generator, that spits out random zeros and ones and put someone in a room and have that person intend through their thought, not touching it, no wires, for the random number generator to spit out more ones than zeros. And it would. 
and it did it consistently. And so he began to ask the question, how can the consciousness field and thought affect a quantum random number generator, which is what he was using. And so that unleashed an entire area of physics, which people think sounds very obtuse and, and uh, sort of mystical, but it isn't. And what we, what we had discovered when I was younger is that, in fact, these civilizations that are from various star systems have technologies that Elon Musk could only dream about. In other words, they very accurately transmit and send and receive directed quanta of thought instead of an electromagnetic signal per se through what's called field consciousness. And conscious, the consciousness field is, I mean, it sounds very Buddhist or Vedic, but the consciousness field is actually not bound by space-time, space or time. And because of that, there's no limit on the speed of it. It's instantaneous because of what's called non-locality in physics. is a bit obtuse and, and technical to get into probably here. But what non-locality means is that it's not based in the speed, the linear speed of light or the linear speed of sound or what have you. It's instantaneous because of the nature of conscious field, the field of consciousness. And this is, the, to me, the most interesting stuff uh, because this whole science of consciousness is actually the big science for the next 1,000 years, but we have to catch up to the last 70 to 100 years of energy to, and propulsion technologies that have been hidden away so we don't destroy the biosphere. But this is what really led me to leave my medical career a few years ago and say, you know what? This, this has got to get addressed in some sort of a credible way. So we started this research project to do that. And um, A Close Encounter of the Fifth Kind, this documentary, what that is, is when humans initiate the contact with these civilizations and they respond. That's what a CE5 shorthand is. And so we've also developed an app. It's called the CE5 Contact app. It's on all the stores, you know, Google and iTunes so that people can learn how to do the techniques to do this. And now we have 100,000 people around doing it, having all these amazing experiences with these can objects. We going can we get a little bit more deeper into this? Because here's what I'm, yeah. I don't want to, I, I want the audience that's watching this sure. that doesn't speak your language. So assuming yes. none of us are physicists, none of us are doctors, we're regular people that run businesses, companies, investors, founders, Great. We're trying to get smarter, so when you use the bigger words, you lose us immediately. But oh. I learned when you were saying 186 miles a second for one year is a light year. I didn't know that before, so I feel smarter just hearing that fact from you. Okay. But let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the basics. Sure. So you said something very interesting to go back to. You said that uh, when Eisenhower gave this speech, and you're talking about a five-star general in the past, or even the Clinton situation, or even some other presidents, are you saying some of these projects that they're working on with UFOs or unidentified, you know, uh, let's just talk about UFOs first and aliens. Are you talking about this is a project that's even bigger than a president of the United States, meaning it's not even at that level, that some of the stuff they're not even going to know? It's classified beyond the normal briefing for the president, yes. And, and what does that mean? So, you know, you know, when uh, uh, Obama became a president first and he went on uh, Jimmy Kimmel 
And he sat there and they asked him a question. And, you know, Jimmy says, look, if I was a president first, the first thing I would do is, okay, I'm president. I'm going to go get checked out to see if there's really aliens. And then mm -hmm. Obama says, that's why you're not a uh, president, you know, because, and then he says, yeah, but tell me, do aliens exist? And then uh, because Bill Clinton said no, and then Obama said, well, that's what we're supposed to tell you. That's what we're told to tell you. And then recently they asked Trump, I think Tucker Carlson asked Trump and uh, about mm -hmm. yep. uh, uh, presidents. I'm sure you saw that when Tucker asked Trump, hey, so what do you think about UFOs? And he says, I'm not a believer, but anything is possible. He mm -hmm. said that on um, uh, the interview with Tucker Carlson. Are these, are presidents, you think like the situation where the average citizen's thinking about, well, they become a president and they take him to Area 51, they show them what aliens look like, they show them what kind of spaceships we have, and then they're supposed to keep their mouth shut and they get all that information. Does that happen or is that just in movies? That's just in movies. Um, yeah. And it depends on the president. Let me give you an example. In the case of, we had a president years ago named Ronald Reagan, and he was briefed uh, in a limited way on the subject, but with a psychological warfare objective to get him to support SDI, space, you know, the so-called Star Wars objects in space. And uh, they're in a bubble, you know, I mean, Truman said, and then Clinton repeated that the White House is the crown jewel of the federal penitentiary system. And that really is true. So everyone thinks that you come out of the whatever, you know, a businessman like Trump or a peanut farmer like Jimmy Carter, and you become president and you have an absolute all access pass. And that is true for conventional intelligence and military operations. But the unconventional ones, and the proper name of that is an unacknowledged special access project, USAP. In fact, there's a documentary that came out three years ago that's on Netflix, if you have Netflix, called Unacknowledged that we did. It's uh, globally, it's had over 600 million views that you can see. Um, the new documentary is, is a follow-on to that one. But the Unacknowledged Special Access Projects is the proper military term for projects that are off the books, deep black, and no one is briefed on them who is not, doesn't have a need to know. So you would say, well, the president has a need to know everything. But those projects have arrogated to themselves the fact that, oh, no, you don't. And let me give you an example. I want, so I want to make this less abstract and more concrete for people. I was at the Pentagon briefing what's called J2, the head of intelligence joint staff. So you were in the military. So this is the guy who, who is the director of intelligence for the briefings for the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States. And he uh, had asked to have a briefing by me and some of the people on my team uh, because one of my team members knew him and had reached out. Before I went to the briefing, I sent him a document through Courier that was a, a, a briefing summary and the, the, the top document on it was a document that listed some of the code names and code numbers for those projects. Based on that, he recognized one of them. He wasn't sure what they did, and he contacted them. And basically, he was threatened. He was, the first thing they said to him was, this is Admiral Tom Wilson, by the way. And Admiral Wilson was told, sir, you don't have a need to know. And he said, God damn it, how can I not have a need to know? I'm the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And they said, sir, we will not discuss this with you. 
When he continued to push on the matter, he was threatened with being demoted and having a star taken off his lapel. So you can imagine by the time astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth man to walk on the moon, and I and some of our people walked into that office, because this happened before my stand-up briefing at the Pentagon, uh, he was furious but scared. And so the public thinks that, you know, God is in heaven and everything is in orbit and everything is, uh, we actually are, are living in a, a situation where the extreme secrecy Eisenhower warned us about, the worst of that has come to fruition. And frankly, no one is reporting that, certainly not the mainstream me news media. So what has happened and what, what the, the sort of through the looking glass that happened to me was that from that experience, I then had a briefing a couple years later with General Patrick Hughes. Now, for people who don't know who he was, he was the three-star general who is the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is like the CIA for the Pentagon. It's the big clearing operation for intelligence gathering and assessments and analysts. And the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, General Hughes, had made inquiries through proper channels onto this subject, and he was denied access. So I was asked to come in with my military advisor and a couple other people to brief him, and he told the same story. In fact, he went over to his bookshelf. Now imagine this. I'm at the Pentagon, where the generals and admirals, that part of the Pentagon, he goes over to, in his conference room, goes over to, to his bookshelf, picks up a little E.T. doll like you'd get at a store, toy store, and he said furiously, he says, this is all I've ever gotten in my inquiry about this through channels as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. So he was furious, obviously, and I said, look, you're not the, he says, well, who else is in this situation? I said, well, the president, the director of the CIA, J2, Admiral Wilson, yourself, a couple of the members of the Senate Intelligence Committee I have briefed, et cetera. Ironically, one of them was Senator Dick Bryan, whose territory was so-called Area 51, Nellis Air Force Base, and he had no knowledge of this. So now, when I say this, I want to clarify something. There have been DCIs, Directors of Central Intelligence, who have been read in or briefed. There have been DIA generals who did know. And people say, well, why do some know and some don't? It's whether they've come up with the pedigree through these USAP, unacknowledged black, black, super black projects, and are trusted to keep the secret. So if they've come up through that system, they may know. If they haven't come up through that system, which is an alternative reality, frankly, they're not going to know because they haven't been cleared and read into it. And it's not known by the people controlling those projects that they would, in fact, maintain the strict level of secrecy. And Who do this, is not just, this is not just the United States, by the way. The same situation exists in Great Britain, Australia. I've, I've met with ministers of defense in, in most of the Five Eyes countries, which are, of course, you know, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Great Britain, U.S. And, in fact, except for New Zealand, I've met, met with MOD or, or defense folks in all those countries. And it, it's an enormous problem because we're talking about a major dysfunction of the Constitution and rule of law on arguably the biggest secret in the history of the United States. 
And uh, when that happens, a lot of bad things will occur. Things go wrong when things are, are not being overseen properly and controlled properly. And that's the situation we face. So what I concluded by the year 2001, which was, of course, now 19 uh, years ago, in May, May, this is almost the, the 19th anniversary, on 2001, May 9th at the National Press Club, we held a briefing for the press. And I had 22 top secret military people there. And it was covered globally. But as it began to get covered by the news media in the United States, the intelligence community contacted those media outlets and told them to take it down. And they did. So the other myth that people have is that on the things that are really important, that we have a free press. We do not. Actually, the Soviet Union had a freer press than we do on this. So ironically, there's a, there's a really big problem with the U.S. function because of this level of, frankly, corruption. There's nothing else to call it but corruption. Um, and it has really hurt our democracy, but it's also hurting our economy. Uh, people often say, you know, why are we still using jet engines from the 30s, 40s, 50s? or rockets from the 40s. I'm saying because the alternative would completely terminate the petrodollar system and oil and gas and coal and nuclear power and public utilities. All of it is redundant, completely unnecessary. Now, people would say, well, then the cure may be worse than the disease. I said, no, there's no disease worse than a terminal event for the biosphere. So going back to when you were talking about those organizations that are separate than even the uh, director of CIA or any of our uh, leaders knowing, yes. who are they recruiting that's different, that's underground that we don't know about? Are they recruiting military folks or they're recruiting different uh, backgrounds? Both. I mean, sci I know scientists who work in SCIFs, uh, Secure Communication Information Facilities, it's got a SCIF, uh, who are civilian who work on these projects. Um, I know corporate folks with Science Applications International Corporation or Lockheed Skunk Works, my uncle's old company, Northrop Grumman. Uh, there's a lot of contracting, but it's very, very highly compartmented. In the government, it's similarly highly com compartmented. And, and the proper name, you know, people use the term deep state. It's an incorrect term. The proper term is an unacknowledged special access project. Um, you know, it's a good tutorial for the president to learn the proper lingo, frankly, um, for this. Uh, and, and this is the world I've been steeped in for 30 years now. But I think we, we have a situation where the, the corporate classified sector is where the research and development and technology uh, is mainly happening. But under the aegis of USAP, unacknowledged special access projects, from the military and intelligence community. So it's sort of a hybrid uh, operation between a corporate and a governmental, very top secret program. That's, that's interesting to know that because it's even a whole different level than a CIA or uh, a Delta Force. You're, you're talking oh, about yeah. a, a league of its own is what it is. So you mentioned earlier that one of the reasons why uh, maybe these conversations are not being had because uh, many industries would take a big hit and so to control it, I think it's a quote you gave about when Tesla was able to build a car without an engine or without a battery. And I think he was talking to an entrepreneur at the time. I don't know if it was Edison or uh, 
uh, uh, Ford. Who was it he was talking to? Oh, he was to? talking to J.P. Morgan. He was talking to J.P. So, Morgan. Yeah, Tesla, Tesla uh, actually had a prototype car that was pulling energy out of the uh, environment. Uh, and he didn't really understand what that was. Uh, we do now. It's called zero-point energy or quantum vacuum energy. Uh, but basically, just for people who are non-scientific, not scientists, if you visualize a coffee cup, the amount of space inside that cup has enough energy to boil off all the oceans of the planet and its potential. And it's called the zero-point energy field. It's been quantified. It was in academic papers in the 50s, so-called Professor Casimir, Casimir effect. But Tesla stumbled across this back way back, early 20s, I believe, maybe before. But J.P. Morgan said, look, if we can't put a meter on it, we don't want it. <laughs> so Tesla died a very bitter man. I always joke that Elon Musk doesn't have a Tesla that he's manufacturing. He has a Musk. And the reason I say that sort of jokingly is that a true Tesla would never have to be plugged into the grid. It would be pulling energy out of this energy, this state of energy that's around us through very high voltage systems. They're called VHV, very high voltage systems that create a, a, an opening into that energy field. And Tesla did enough experimentation with these sort of very high voltage systems at certain uh, resonant frequencies, cycles per second, hertz, that he broke that he broke into that area of science, but no one wanted it to come out. Now, you know, fast forward 100 years later, we're still burning gasoline in engines and rocket fuel and jets. And that's a tragedy for the human race, but it's a tragedy for the planet. And it's a tragedy for our children and my uh, nine grandchildren. So my concern is, you know, the future. Uh, the past is the past, but we have to figure out how to catch up uh, sort of back to the future. We, you know, <laughs> it's like the, that cartoon show, the Jetsons, when they showed people flying around in these cars, when that cartoon was made, those technologies were already developed. Yeah. Going back to what you said about free press, uh, uh, you were mentioning the fact that we think we have a free, free press, but we don't. Were you uh, alluding to uh, Project uh, Mockingbird? Yes. Uh, of course, Project Mockingbird and there are others. Uh, that it existed where, uh, for example, a constitutional attorney, Daniel Sheehan, that's in this new documentary, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, uh, he states that when he was representing the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers uh, scandal back in the 70s during the Vietnam War, uh, he saw a document that listed, it listed 42 different people who were senior national security editors at major media who were also dual purposed on the payroll of the CIA. And he thought this was a very significant thing in terms of freedom of the press and independence of the press. And, uh, but nobody would let that story get reported because it's, it's scandalously corrupt uh, because the, the, the free press and the fourth estate is one of the pillars of a democracy. And, and that sort of gives lie, gives sort of a, 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 a makes a mock, uh, Project Mockingbird made a mockery of that. Uh, and then, you know, in my own adventures, uh, back in the 90s, I was meeting with Bob Schwartz in New York. He was on the board of Time Life, which became AOL, Time Warner, blah, blah, blah. 
And, you know, he was an older gentleman um, who had, you know, good friends with Mike Wallace at 60 Minutes and what have you. And I was with him at a gathering in New York. I was doing a briefing for a lot of the New York, I hate to use the word elites, but, you know, leaders, uh, the so-called New York 100. And when I was at this meeting, he turned to me, he says, you know, the fourth estate is dead. I said, what do you mean? He says, we're scribes taking dictation from the right hand of the king. He says, we don't have a fourth estate. There is no free press in the United States on the things that really matter. And then he told me this story. Uh, Mr. Schwartz told me this story of, of you know, his friend Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes was given some documents about these UFO covert programs. And Mike Wallace wanted to do the story. And CBS and 60 Minutes say, you will not do this story. And, and Mike Wallace went into a very deep depression over this that he later admitted to the public that he was very depressed. But he, and, and he said on Larry King, I'd been on Larry King around this time, and he said on Larry King Live, which was a post on CNN back in the old days, and he said, I'm a fraud. And, and Larry said, what do you mean you're a fraud? To, to, to Mike Wallace. And he wouldn't go into the details, but this is the backstory. Bob Schwartz told me, look, you know, he was devastated that the biggest story that would have been ever in investigative journalism, CBS jumped in and killed it and wouldn't let it be broadcast or even pursued on 60 Minutes, which, of course, at that time was the blue chip investigative reporting, uh, you know, uh, news magazine on network television. So that's one of the this is something that's sort of a side issue to what I'm working on. But it's a big part of why when you turn on your television set, even if you get these leaked Pentagon videos that came out, they, they re-released them this past week. You probably saw them on CNN and elsewhere. Yep. They're not going to say, A, we know what these are. B, we know where they come from. C, we figured out how they work. Let me give you a date that's going to probably curl your toes. October 1954. That was the date we mastered gravity control. Now, what do I mean by gravity control? What I mean by gravity control are high voltage systems that cause an object to what looks like levitate or move the way that vehicle that you saw in that video released by the Pentagon this week. And they confirm, yes, this is real footage. And they released three different videos. What they didn't say, because the people releasing it don't know this because of the compartmentalization, is that there is an unacknowledged compartmented program that began studying this in the 40s and 50s and by 1954 had figured out how those things operate. So not to confuse your viewers any more than I probably already have, but so when you see one of these objects, you have to ask a question. Is it a classified aerospace project from the Lockheed Skunk Works or my uncle's company, Northrop mm -hmm. Grumman, or is it interstellar, extraterrestrial? And both are out there, by the way. But no one's asking the question, is it A or B? And that's a very big fault of the uh, so-called... Why are UFO. they not asking that? What's the big They're deal not asking the right question. questions, yes. But why, why not ask that question? It doesn't seem like it's a big deal of a question. Well, because the, the reportage on this never goes that deep. It gets, it's just, here's something that got released. What is it? We don't know. On to the next story. 
But you know why they waited? I mean, this happened in 04. It's not like this happened just uh, three months ago. Uh, and and even the Navy pilot, I think his uh, Underwood, Chad uh, Underwood, who was flying it, he says, you know, I saw this thing. And, you know, you've seen this before video when he's explaining it. And even ex-UFO uh, program chief Luis Elizondo says, we may not be alone here. You know, why are they waiting from 04 to now to release these three videos? Well, my own assessment of that is about two and a half years ago when they first surfaced, this documentary called Unacknowledged went viral and literally has had over 600 million people see it. The counterintelligence people at the Pentagon, which includes Luis Elizondo, wanted this footage to come out, but with the narrative that it's a threat to our national security. If you look at the sub rosa narrative, most of the narrative, excuse me, there's a beam of light coming from the side. I see it. There, there's, if you look at that narrative, what they have been saying is, yes, this is real, but it's a threat to our airspace. It's a threat to our pilots. Why? Well, there's a man named Werner von Braun who invented the rocket for Adolf Hitler. He became the foundation of our space program. His spokesperson for the last five years of his life is on my team, Carol Rosen. And she said, look, he said, what they're going to do, there's going to be global, there's going to be the Cold War, then global terrorism, then other threats from outer space. And the final card they're going to play is the alien threat card. And it's all a hoax. It's all a lie. And this gets into how people who have these sort of agendas can exploit a subject and make a disaster uh, out of something that shouldn't be a disaster. You know, not unlike us storming into Iraq during the, uh, after 9-11, when there was a scintilla of evidence that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11, which now has destroyed that entire region of the Middle East. Uh, And even Trump has said that, you know, that was a huge mistake. Uh, But here we are, you know, all these years later. What I'm concerned about is that that release was timed to hijack the narrative away from the fact that we're not alone in the universe. We have these objects. We understand how they work. That needs to be disclosed. And we need to make peaceful contact with these civilizations, not be shooting them down with lasers. But the narrative that the intelligence community has begun to create is unfortunately one of a threat matrix where they're adding to the threat matrix, this alien threat. And I can assure you having worked with everyone in every compartment, literally nearly a thousand people have been in these projects. There's not a scintilla of evidence that these are a threat to our national security or to the human race. Now, I will say that they think that humans are a threat. They think that humans are actually becoming a threat because we're dangerously destroying this planet's biosphere. We're beginning to go out in space with killer satellites, and we have been targeting these ET spacecraft for a number of decades with increasingly sophisticated classified weapon systems. Doc, who's they? You said they are worried that we are a threat. Who's they? The extraterrestrial civilizations. They think we're a threat. Yes. 
uh, and to ourselves and others. Uh, you know, I kind of laugh as an emergency doctor. If somebody really crazy comes into the emergency department where they're mentally ill and they're a threat to themselves or others, they're put in an involuntary commitment because you don't want them to kill themselves or kill an innocent person. Uh, I think that these civilizations view humans at this stage uh, of being becoming extremely technologically advanced, but not socially and spiritually advanced enough to handle it. And we're, you know, obviously have weapons of mass destruction that you know about. What your audience doesn't know about is that there are multiple generations of electromagnetic weapons that are much more dangerous than a hydrogen bomb that have been developed. And those have been put on satellites that have targeted these ET spacecraft. And this, when I, this was the main reason, by the way, I briefed the, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. He had heard rumblings of this and knew that it was an existential threat to the peace and security of not just the United States, but of our civilization. How do you know that the extraterrestrial thinks we are a threat? How because, do you know? Well, a lot of it is observational. For example, when the Minot, North Dakota intercontinental ballistic missile silos, where we have our big nuclear intercontinental weapons, uh, was uh, breached by UFOs back in the 60s, the, the men that were in the silo, a number of whom were on my team, said that the message that they were receiving uh, from the behavior, what they did, what the ETs did, they took... Eight, at least 18 of those multiple warhead intercontinental ballistic missiles offline. They rendered them unlaunchable. But they did it only as a way of saying, please don't blow up this beautiful planet, but if you do go to a full launch, we can minimize it. And this has been one of the things that I talked to. If you look at the Disclosure Project materials, I have an interview with Colonel Dietrich, who was the... Um, uh, head of the uh, nuclear uh, supervisory group for the Air Force, but also the old Atomic Energy Commission. And he said every one of our atomic weapons and space facilities had been sur surveyed by these ETs, and they had all concluded that they were not doing anything to threaten us, but they thought that we had become a threat to ourselves and could potentially in the future be a threat, existential threat out in space. So uh, humans being so narcissistic, we always are thinking, oh, I don't understand what this is. It's a threat to me. The irony of this is that we're actually the out of control primates rampaging around the planet with endless wars and now covertly putting programs up into space that are extremely powerful technologies on satellites that are a threat. So this is a very complex issue that we've gotten into, but this was also why when Boutros Boutros Ghali was UN Secretary General, I, I had a meeting with his folks, with him and his wife, and, and it was a discussion about how do we approach this issue in a way that de-escalates it and where we have some kind of rational diplomatic outreach to whoever are in these uh, UFOs, the ones that are not man-made. And that's what the Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is. The CE5 initiative is all about doing that. 
It reminds me a little bit of what we did in the Cold War. There was a group called Physicians for Social Responsibility that were American physicians that went over to the Soviet Union to create some sort of dialogue to try to, to diffuse this mutual assured destruction, you know, uh, atomic clock getting too far out of hand where we may go to uh, DEFCON 1 and launch all our missiles. And what we're doing with Close Encounters as a fifth kind is sort of a citizen's diplomacy outreach to these civilizations using some rather novel and perhaps controversial protocols and techniques, but that work. And they're based on what I was talking about earlier, non-locality and consciousness and connection to these objects. Uh, they have very sophisticated systems that can interface with people who go into uh, what, what some people would call a deep meditative state who then can remote view. Now, the remote viewing term is from the CIA back in the 70s where they trained people to basically spy on the Soviet Union using consciousness. And it was a very successful program. If you look at uh, Dr. Russell Targ and others, he's a physicist who was in that program for 23 years, they had enormous success using that. We're using that not to spy, but to make contact and to uh, create a liaison between humans and those civilizations because our, our government has completely failed us and frankly so is the United Nations. So that's why we're taking this wide uh, through doing this documentary. You know, you, you, uh, uh, the way you speak is incredibly convincing and you obviously come across extremely confident. You have an incredible voice. You have a track record, 80,000 patients, emergency doctor, MD, you've uh, briefed Pentagon, all these other places you've been. But the way you explain that the extraterrestrial is concerned more about us than we ought to be, uh, uh, they're worried about them. You say that in a way of certainty, like you're 100% uh, uh, confident that that's what it is. You're not saying it with, I believe that's what they're thinking. You're saying it, they are concerned. That's a definite answer you're given. How right. could you give a definite answer and not saying this is what my feelings are? Because I've spent 30 years leading a team that has made contact with these civilizations. You've spent, okay, so uh, uh, let, let me ask you a question. Have you, you talk about the five different levels of encounters, right? If you don't mind explaining the five different encounters. Sure. Oh yeah, we can do that. So a close encounter of the first kind is when an object is seen within a reasonable distance where you can actually see the structure of it. A close encounter of the second kind is when there's some physical evidence that is left, like it lands, it leaves evidence, like the Bent Waters case in England, or a radar, where it's on radar, like you saw, the, where there's some clear physical evidence that is resulting. Everyone knows what close encounter the third kind is from the Steven Spielberg movie, is when there is a encounter with an actual uh, extraterrestrial biological entity, an EBE. A close encounter of the fourth kind is when someone has an experience where they are uh, taken on board one of these craft. And then a close encounter of the fifth kind is when humans, instead of these being, a those other four are passive events. A close encounter of the fifth kind is when humans initiate the communication and contact under a mutual conditions. Um, so that's what a close encounter of the fifth kind is. Which of the, which of the five have you personally experienced? All five. You've, you've personally experienced all five? Yes. So you've personally had interaction with extraterrestrial uh, 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 aliens out there? Yes. Personally? Yes. And you're 100% about that? Yes. 
has it been a face-to-face or it's been through the energy? Face-to-face. You face-to-face met an alien before? Yes. And how old were you when this happened? First time that happened, I was 18. (laughs) And it's a very interesting story. I I wrote a book some years ago called Hidden Truth, Forbidden Knowledge, which is kind of a story about my life, how I got involved with this. And uh, before I was in college, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I got very sick and had a near-death experience. And I was raised in a scientific family where, you know, if it didn't fit into a test tube or whatever, it didn't exist. So I was raised in an atheist, scientific, reductionist family. So I didn't have any belief systems about the pearly gates and the this and the that. Nevertheless, the truth is what it is. I I got very sick. I died, had near-death experience, obviously came back to life. But in that process, had this amazing experience with what mystical literature would call cosmic consciousness or that state of oneness with the conscious being of the cosmos. And I was out in in space when this happened because I had a great love for the earth and space. I didn't really care about the the religious traditions because I didn't, wasn't raised that way. And that experience taught me that I really needed to understand what consciousness was, what the, the light of consciousness, within us is. So I began on my 18th birthday, coincidentally, I learned meditation and uh, then went off to college. So I'm up in in North Carolina, I'm up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, I hike up this mountain and I'm meditating uh, a little before sunset. But just before I close my eyes, I look out and the same spacecraft that I saw when I was uh, a child, eight or nine years of age, appeared again, or it looked the same. And it appeared, it materialized and dematerialized. It didn't just fly in and out like you see an airplane. And I went, oh, that's interesting. They're back. You know, I didn't think more about it. I sat down and meditated. And at the end of the meditation, it lasted very long. It had gotten quite dark. And I'm up over 5,000 feet up in the Blue Ridge. And it was very clear in October of 73. And I look up in the beautiful Milky Ways above. And I then see that there's this, to be honest with you, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but you asked, I'll tell you. I thought it was a deer standing on its hind legs, <laughs> upright, like a human, and had these beautiful deer-like eyes. And then I realized it wasn't a deer. And I was very disoriented. I said, what the hell is this? It came over and touched me on my right shoulder. And actually, so much I had a ski jacket on, I could see it in dent. And it touched me, and there was this electromagnetic field that went around me, bang. I vanished off the mountain and I was on this craft for, I don't know, maybe I'm going to guess around three or four hours. And that's what happened to me when I was 18. I know it sounds like an unbelievable story, but that led me into really wanting to pursue how these civilizations travel, how they communicate. So in that experience, when I was on this object, we, I did this meditative process with these beings and created these close encounters of the fifth kind protocols. And I didn't do anything with it uh, uh, publicly for many, many years. That was in 73. I didn't emerge, do anything public with this until the early 90s. But what I did do is I began to experiment with it. And every time I'd experiment with it, 
uh, where where I was up 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 in the mountains of North Carolina, one of these objects would appear, and I kind of got a little bit. I said, you know, I don't think I should be doing this unless I have a better reason. So I stopped. And uh, in the movie, Close to Karen's the Fifth Kind, you'll see a couple years later, I'm becoming a teacher of meditation. This is before I went to medical school. And I'm up in the Alps, in the French Alps, in the Maritime Alps. And one morning, I decide to do this technique. So I go into quiet meditation. I remote view where these ET objects are. And I show them, reverse the process, and show them where I am up in the Alps near Isola, France. And, and that's it. I do it for maybe an hour during a meditation. I go out with some friends after lunch, and this massive tetrahedron appears in the crystal blue sky. And in the documentary that's out now, Close Cameras of the Fifth Kind, a friend of mine who was with me then, we were 19 years old, maybe had turned 20, um, very young. And this object appears and descends towards us. And she goes, Steve, what did you do? Did you contact? I said, yes. And of course, she's now freaking out, frankly. I go, Marion, relax. They're fine. They're just, you know. But so that happened. And then a couple years later, I tried it one more time. And that event led to that case that is in the movie uh, with the police helicopter and the uh, airline pilots in Charlotte, North Carolina, that saw these objects after I engaged in that protocol again. So I began, I experimented with it periodically, but didn't formalize a project around it until 1990, about 30 years ago. So let me ask you, at that time, were you at all uh, 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 using recreational drugs, LSD? <laughs> no, no. I never, never, ever have done any of those things. Never have used any of those things. Okay, so no. then when you had that cosmic moment, how do you know that wasn't a dream and it was a real moment? How do you, you're a pretty smart guy. You're a well-read person. You, you're not somebody that just mm -hmm. jumps to... How, how, do you, how do you differentiate it? But maybe it was just a dream that I had because we've had some wild dreams in our lives. Well, if you talk to neurosurgeons and other doctors who've dealt with patients who've died and they've been resuscitated, it's an unmistakable experience where you go above and out of your body and out and can observe things. Yeah, I mean, I guess if somebody is hell-bent on not believing this is possible, you can explain it any way you wish. But there's too much evidence around that. And, and ultimately, I know what I experienced. It was certainly not a dream. Uh, now, I have had uh, lucid dreams of the future and things like that. I mean, you know, I think this is very common in society. People have a dream and the next day or a year later it happens. I met actually my wife that way in a series of lucid dreams. But I think that that it has the ability with the development of consciousness and meditation. The more people, the more people are in touch with the meditative state and develop these conscious abilities, the more those things spontaneously happen. Uh, but the truth is, every person who is sentient and conscious has these abilities within them, which is why when you do a poll of the public, huge percentage of the public have had precognitive dreams, lucid dreams of the future, uh, maybe episodic telepathic episodes. And a large number of people have had a near-death experience where they recount a similar pattern of events that, that, that occur. Do you believe in God? Well, it's a freighted word, isn't it, God? 
Um, I believe in us, uh, the great spirit, the unbounded being, you call it God. When you use the word God in our society, it conjures up an angry man up on a cloud throwing lightning bolts down on people. Creator. Do you happened. believe in a creator? Do you believe absolutely. there is a creator? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, you absolutely believe in a creator. Okay. Yeah. I did. <laughs> I didn't when I was younger because we were, I mean, we were very devout atheists. What, when did that happen? When did you convert? Was that around the same time, 1819, or is it, was it past that? When I, when I had the near-death experience. I mean, that, that, that's when you but, believed in a creator. Well, because I experienced that state. So experiencing that state is different from, you know, the catechisms of reading a Bible or something. I think, you know, I always tell people the great teacher is experience. And the foundation of science, by the way, is empiricism, observation, experience. So if you experience something like that, that goes a lot further than having a priest dictate to you what you should believe or not. Um, so I, I'm not to diminish priests at all. I'm just saying that ultimately it's what people can experience and prove and know for themselves, which is one of the reasons I people say, oh, what you're saying sounds unbelievable. I said, well, go out and try this and, and see if something happens. Uh, I, I really am an empiricist. I think people need to rely on their own ability to discover what the truth is uh, and not rely on myself or any other expert uh, to tell them what they should or shouldn't believe. I just think people should engage in self-discovery and discovery in the world. You, you, you speak in absolutes. Are you more absolute that God exists or more absolute that extraterrestrials exist? I don't really think it's an either-or question. I'm, okay. I, I'm, I, I, I'm confident that both do. You're confident that both do. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's good to know. Is there any doubt that you may be wrong? Do you have any doubt where? <laughs> oh, well, there are a lot of things I don't know. But the things I do know I'll talk about is because I know them. You know, I talk about things that I have personal knowledge of as opposed to things that are second, third, fourth hand. So if you look at this subject on the Internet, there's all kinds of wild theories based on fourth hand conjectures. I don't engage in that. Uh, the things that I that my team and I have experienced directly, we know we've experienced. And if you look at this documentary, uh, there, there's this wonderful story, you may recall it from the movie, where this uh, older gentleman who had had a hearing loss since he was very young, uh, I think since middle school, high school. Yep. And we were up in Arizona a couple years ago doing the CE5 contact protocols. And there was an ET that came in faster than the speed of light zoom. There have been these objects up above us and we have photos and videos of, and this suddenly we heard something behind us. So a man who was on the team with me named David Marconi, who wrote the screenplay for enemy of the state that Will Smith was in. So he had some great cameras. So he swung it around because I said, look, there's something right over here. And he, took a photo as we heard this, and there's this ET, this extraterrestrial about five, six feet tall, between a medical student who's on our team and this man who had lost his hearing. And the man, uh, after this happened, continued having a contact with this ET throughout that evening. And the next morning he woke up and this, you know, 40, a 50 year long hearing loss 
uh, had been completely reversed because he had asked that to happen. Now, you know, that story is, uh, you would say, well, it's apocryphal, but it's, it's in the documentary. Um, the photograph is in the documentary. Uh, the experience is in there. Now, there's a lot behind what happened in terms of what we did to set up the conditions for that uh, event. But I've been present at several thousand events like that. So, no. so this is what makes me say, you know, what I and other people with me have seen and documented and photographed that I am very confident about. There's a lot of other things that are out there that are conjecture that I try to steer away from. Yeah, and by the way, uh, you know, you could tell the man who uh, was able to hear again when he got emotional. You, I mean, either he's an incredible actor and he belongs in Hollywood or you just could feel the level of sincerity he had. You know, Doc, obviously you're not alone. When you look at the stats, 33% of U.S. adults believe that some UFO sightings over the years have in fact been alien spacecraft visiting Earth from other planets or galaxies. 33% is one-third. That's, that's a pretty big number. And then you have, uh, even as most Americans are skeptical that aliens have visited Earth, the majority, 56%, believe that those who spot UFOs are seeing something real, right. not just imagining it. So, I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I'm not coming from a place of uh, I'm on one side or another side. But for me, I haven't had some of the experiences that you've had. And you're not somebody that just all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, you're uh, uh, a conspiracy person that's just going out there saying this. You're somebody that's a medical doctor. You're somebody that's uh, briefed uh, and spoken at Pentagon. You're somebody that's uh, gotten information out there. Uh, this kind of leads me to the next part. When, when you're thinking about uh, uh, aliens, to us, we think about aliens looking like the aliens in movies, right? We yeah. think about them with the eyes and how they look, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. From your experience, you said looking like a deer, six feet tall, touched your right shoulder. Mm. What, what, if you've seen them, what do aliens look like? Well, before I answer that, just remember this. Every stable star system has planets around it and the number of, of intelligent civilizations that are estimated to just be in our own galaxy number in the millions. Let me repeat that. And we're one galaxy out of a trillions of galaxies. So what I'm going to say then is that in our experience, and I'm just dealing with the 30 years, my team has gone out doing this. We have had, sightings and encounters and with almost the full gamut of, of types of life forms. For example, in the movie, there's this one image of a being that's about uh, two feet tall on a beach in Florida. And it looks like uh, almost like a hologram, but it's this crystalline figure that looks like it has a halo. It's actually a toroidal energy, a donut shaped energy field around it. And uh, that being was standing in front of us as we were setting up our team on the beach at near Boca Grande in Florida on the, on the West Coast, the Gulf Coast. And the, but that being was maybe at the most two feet tall. There are others that we have documented that are over eight to ten feet tall. There are different shapes. So the caricature you see in Hollywood movies and in most UFO stuff, that's just almost like a a racist caricature. It's sort of a joke. And nobody in the intelligence community takes those seriously. Um, and this is part of the problem because 
the mythology on this subject is the dominant database that's out there. And the facts about the subject are the hardest to find. So we're trying to get some clarity on that. But yes, you're quite correct. There are the ones, the, the image of the bug-eyed looking, that, that's sort of your, your kind of stereotypical uh, being. And there are a couple of species that may look somewhat like that. But it is by no means what most or all of them do. And my own understanding from the experiences I've had with these ETs and with people who are in the intelligence community who work this subject in classified programs is that none of them are hostile, but they, and they all have different levels of development. But in order for them to have gone interstellar, and have that kind of technological capability where you're moving from point A to B across thousands or millions of light years of space, that technological capability means that your society has evolved past where we are, where our sciences and technologies could be our undoing if we use them for war. And I always mention to people that this is one of the reasons why civilizations that can evolve to that level of technology, if they haven't gotten their social and not religious per se, but spiritual inner development high enough, the, the technologies are going to be used to destroy their own society like we almost have. So these civilizations are very advanced intellectually, socially, spiritually, uh, and technologically. But the technology in and of itself isn't the answer. If you have very advanced technology, but you're still running around like a bunch of marauding chimpanzees, you're going to kill yourself and everyone mm -hmm. on the planet because you're not talking about just uh, uh, technologies as dangerous as a hydrogen bomb. You're talking about technologies that are orders of magnitude more powerful to transfer a spacecraft from point A to B across space-time. So when you look at that, you, you kind of realize that we're dealing with extraordinarily advanced civilizations that have both innate mental abilities, intellectual, uh, let's call it telepathic and other, but their technologies are also awesome, frankly, when you observe these things and how they move. If you look at this documentary, The Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, you'll, you'll see the object that will be here and almost instantaneously, it instantly appears here. And, and these are during our CE5 events. And people go, what? I'm going, yes, they're not moving in a straight line. And I remind people, one of our disclosure project witnesses was a, uh, the man, the chief investigator for the federal government, uh, the FAA, uh, John Callahan. And there was a case uh, in the 80s where uh, a Japan airline 747 heavy cargo jet was going from Paris to Japan, Tokyo over the polar route. And over Alaska, there was a uh, UFO that appeared the size of a battleship, huge. And it would appear at you know, nine o'clock and then instantaneously in less than one radar sweep be hundreds of miles away the opposite side. And it moved non-linearly. In other words, not in a line. It would be here and then here. We have, I have in my archive, the original FAA radar tape of this that John Callahan handed off to me. The CIA thought they took it from his office, 
he gave them a copy. I have the original. And we have the pilot statement. We have uh, the account of the jet fighters that were scrambled. And we have the radar tracing. So I tell people the content that we have is orders of magnitude more significant than the footage you're seeing on CNN. And you have to ask the question, why isn't CNN and Fox News doing that story? That goes back to Project Mockingbird you're talking about. But yep. let, let me stay on this. I'm a math guy. So for me, Great. Uh, 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 and by the way, I'm a, I'm, what's weird is I grew up as a Christian family, even though I was an atheist for 25 years, and I'm a big skeptic. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. somebody that's, uh, when you live in Iran and you see what you see, sometimes it's hard to believe there's a, a God, a loving God that wants everything to be fine. So yes, I understand me, that. When I, when I sit there and when I sit there and I look at the math and you look at galaxies, how many are there? And you, you look at you, you do a simple search, 200 billion to 2 trillion or more. That's the number that comes up. 200 right. billion to 2 trillion or more. So that we know of, yeah. That, that we know of. So it's naive to say, oh, 100%, I know for there's no way in the world there's any aliens. Well, what is an alien? What is an extraterrestrial? Is it the guy that looks like in the movies? We've only been around for a few thousand years, whether it's 6,000 years, whatever number you want to say with uh, humans and mankind and all these different numbers that you read about. It's kind of naive to be arrogant and, and to think that somebody in some uh, civilization may not be out there or whatever you want to talk about. But the, the other part is, with the link between water and sun, the distance for a galaxy to be away from the sun, and knowing the fact that you're in this world, I know I was reading an article earlier saying the fact that NASA found a a a, a somewhere a planet that had water four and a half billion years ago, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if you saw that article or not. So could there be a possibility, or maybe you even know this based on research, that there is another planet with people that look like us humans that oh there's water there's you know people that are building similar stuff to the us is there any chance that that could also exist yes i think it's very likely in fact one of the species that we had a contact with um looked very similar to humans um and this is also in the documentary it was an uh, et that appeared uh in the desert at joshua tree national park with our team and I'm, uh, a person right beside me uh, took a photograph of this uh, being, and he actually looks very similar to a human with a receding hairline. And um, the information we got from him was that he was from the Andromeda Galaxy, which is about two and a half million light years from Earth, uh, which is a twin galaxy to the Milky Way. It's a spiral galaxy. How many um, miles away? 2.5 million light years. So he has like the ultimate Uber to yeah, get well, on and figure out a way to get over here. Yeah, but, but the, here's the thing to remember. If, if you're not dealing with linear, distance doesn't matter if Got you're it. dealing with a non-local teleportation and communication system. So distance only matters when you're locked into the linear box of space-time. When your technologies are advanced enough what happens is that an entire spacecraft, it would be enormous, can actually resonantly shift into what some people call another dimension, another field of energy, bypass linear space-time and reappear or rematerialize in another point. And that's actually how they're happening. Now, if you look at the science behind, uh, there have been particle teleportation experiences 
of that physicist and experiments. But we're talking doing this on a macro level with an entire spacecraft and everyone on board it. But again, we're dealing with civilizations that are uh, 10 to the 6th, 10 to the ninth years, 100,000 to millions of years more developed than we are. And if you were to go back, I think part of this is, is human hubris that we think that we're at the apex of technology. If you were to go back down the road from where I'm sitting here is Thomas Jefferson's home. So if I were to go back in time and show Thomas Jefferson my smartphone, well, you might be burned at the stake as a witch. It would look like magic. Um, so almost anything we have today, if you show that to someone from 2,000 years ago, the time of the birth of Christ, you'd be lucky if you weren't burned as a witch or a sorcerer. It would look like magic. Now let's extrapolate where we've come just in the last 100 or 200 years of the technological industrial revolution, let's extrapolate out 100,000, 200,000, a million, 10 million, a billion years. So in a universe that's at least 13 to 15 billion years old, it's a certainty that there are civilizations that are that many orders of magnitude more developed than we are. And so I think this is a, gets back to this importance of scientific empiricism, observation of facts, because what we have happened, it happens in society all the time. If someone observes something that doesn't conform with the paradigm, they are pilloried and they are thrown out of society. I'll give you an example right here at the University of Virginia some years ago, a brilliant doctor discovered that there was a type of bacterium that was responsible for a lot of the worst bleeding ulcers in stomachs. But because that ran against the medical paradigm of it all being cause of acid and this and that, he had to leave America and ended up in Australia. Now, if you don't test, if you have a patient with a bleeding ulcer and you don't test for this bacterium, because if it's there, it's easily treated with doxycycline. If you don't test for that, it's medical malpractice. But his life was ruined. And his reputation was ruined because he dare speak the heresy of an observed fact that ran against scientific orthodoxy. And what I'm saying to public is the facts on this issue are there. They have to be recognized as facts. Maybe if you could come to a different conclusion than I have, but as, as Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own set of facts. So the facts that we need to deal with empirically as, as observed phenomenon have to be accounted for. Now, if our scientific paradigm doesn't quite account for all the strange things that are observed, it doesn't mean it's not legitimate. It just means our science is very early. We're only in the first couple hundred years of any real level of scientific uh, rigor. And so there needs to be some degree of humility on the part of humans about the fact that we are sort of one half of one step out of the jungle as a species, but we're already dealing with advanced civilizations that are several orders of magnitude past where we are. And that's okay. I mean, this is how civilizations evolve. I, th uh, I think I think you make a very good point to say if we were to go back 2,000 years ago and showed an iPhone, what they would react to and oh, what happens if we go 1,000 years, uh, 100,000 years, 
I don't even know if we're going to make it that long out because of uh, the fact that we may have too much divisiveness and going at each other. But teleporting, you said the fact that, you know, how they teleport. Obviously, you see that in movies and you wonder, can we one day have that technology? Who knows? Maybe Warren Buffett sold his shares in airlines because he thinks teleporting is the next phenomenon that we haven't experienced yet. <laughs> actually, actually, classified projects have already done what you're suggesting. Classified projects have already done teleporting. Yes. <laughs> That's intense. Uh, do you know if uh, a human has ever had sex with an alien? I do not know, and nor do I want to know. <laughs> I asked that question I, I for a no different idea. reason. I asked that question for a different reason. Because, I seriously doubt it. Okay, yeah. I asked that because I wonder when you're saying, you know, <laughs> the person that had a hairline, you know, receding hairline, and he looked like... Uh, <laughs> Even the topic got me coughing here with <laughs> humans having sex with aliens. <laughs> Almost reminded me of the movie Avatar. You know yeah. in Avatar how the yeah. guy falls in love with the alien. I don't know if you've seen the movie Avatar. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wonder if there was any stories there. So what are, you, what are your thoughts about Area 51? Well, that, you know, that's a grid um, name. So uh, the actual proper name is the Nevada Test Range. Nellis Air Force Base. And to be specific, in what the pup culture calls Area 51, nobody in my circle calls it that. The key names are uh, S3, S4, S9, S12, Groom Lake, Pahoot Mesa. So there are two parts of that operation. The ones that there, there's part of it that is the energy transfer part, where they are studying uh, retrieved extraterrestrial vehicles that we have, when we have these, uh, and, and studying how they operate, all the different systems. And then there's a, another part of it where they are building up human, uh, let's call it reverse engineered as close as we can get, versions of those. So there are two sets of operations. There are almost no contact between the people in, in, in the DUM, the deep underground military base where the ET craft are held that are working on the other. It, there's sort of a, a, a firewall, but things are transferred, but the people working on the one are not just going back and forth. I know men who've worked on both. Um, I also know um, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations uh, officer who investigated one of these objects we were test flying that was actually an ET object, but we couldn't figure out the energy system properly. So we put on a portable uh, nuclear uh, power plant on it that unfortunately had a malfunction and it went down over the outskirts of Houston and irradiated a lot of civilians there. And uh, this is called the Cash Landrum case, if you want to Google it. And uh, this man came forward uh, a couple years ago and confirm that those were actually four human pilots trying to get this ET object to operate, but they had this power source on it that had a malfunction that unfortunately radiated the people below. And of course, the military denied knowledge of it. And in fact, the people who were uh, approached by both the media and the public, the, the injured parties actually sued the U.S. government. And it got tossed out because the government said, we have no knowledge of that. But the truth is, the ones who were being asked did have no knowledge. 
That's the nature of a highly compartmented, unacknowledged special access project. But that craft that malfunctioned over uh, outside Houston, I believe it was in the early 80s, that was from the Nellis range, from the, uh, the, the part that had the this, this study group that was working on the ET object. Now, there are other facilities that are actually much more important than that one. Uh, outside of Salt Lake City, outside Provo, there's something called the Dugway Proving Grounds. And there's a, a very large underground facility there that Tim, my team members have been to. Uh, there's an underground facility at Edwards Air Force Base and up in the high desert of California and near Palmdale and Lancaster and the, the Lockheed Skunk Works. Uh, and the really key facilities there are all also underground. And, uh, you know, so we know where a number of these facilities are. Um, you know, over the years, I've developed relationships, as I mentioned, with hundreds of people who worked and are currently working in those facilities who give us information. You're starting to concern me because I have an office in Palmdale and the people there concern me every once in a while when I, when I work with them. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're probably going to see this. But, uh, uh, you know, talking about Area 51, S3, S12, you know, the place you talk about in Provo, outside of Provo, what is in there? Like, are, are they holding uh, 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 UFOs or uh, extraterrestrial aliens maybe? Are they holding them hostage? What, what is in there? If somebody was able to sneak in there, what, were, what are we going to see? Well, you we, have 980 whistleblowers. So I'm curious. Somebody's probably giving you information on that. Oh, yeah, a lot. Um, the, the facilities have ET craft that are stored. The bodies, it, most of the folks did not survive the downing of the object and retrieval. Those are uh, stored. They're autopsied and then stored. I know a man at Fort Huachuca in Arizona, which is Army Intelligence Headquarters, yep. And out from that base underground is a facility where there are nine different ET craft that over the years have been retrieved and a, a number of bodies that are stored there. Uh, living? Been, are they living? Living aliens? No, they're all dead. No, they're, they're all, all dead. dead. They're all dead. Yeah. Not, so we don't have any living aliens at any of our locations that you know of? If there are any currently, I don't know about it. I do know that one that lived and survived after the so-called Roswell event, which actually did happen, but it's not what you think. It's not what you've been told. Uh, But one of them did live at least until 1951. And I have an army intelligence officer who actually saw that being in a, in a cage in uh, near Camp Perry near Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, not too far from where I am. Um, I, I understand that that particular being died not long after that. Uh, uh, that's in, by the way, do you know what they eat? Like, do they eat? I I really don't. I mean, there's no conjecture. I don't, I personally don't have information about that. I'm sure there are different civilizations and they eat different things. Feed them something, right? Is it gonna, I I mean, I wonder what they're gonna say. I wonder, like, a medium rare hamburger, you know, cheeseburger, (laughs) like American food, Middle Eastern food. That I don't know. Yeah, I'd be curious because maybe I, I bet they're probably fun conversations to have with them. Uh, a few few last items here before we wrap up. What are your what are your biggest concerns uh, uh, with future threats? You know, we have a lot of people right now that are worried about many different things. They're worried about, you know, what's going to happen with U.S. and China? What's going to happen with oil? What's going to happen with coronavirus, pandemics, bio warfare, cyber war? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think is the biggest threat in the future? I think it may be unfolding right now. 
And as a medical doctor, I'm appalled and shocked at how we have managed and mismanaged this uh, COVID-19 crisis. We don't have time to go into all that, but uh, the folks I have who worked at Fort Detrick uh, in the biowarfare army have confirmed to me that that was in fact a bioengineered virus, uh, that the response that we're having to it is likely to kill many more people than the virus could. In other words, um, because of the collapse of the economy, uh, somewhere around two to three million people may die from poverty, unemployment, not getting medical attention early enough for heart attacks and strokes. Many of my emergency doctor friends are telling me this, who are still in the ER. I'm not in the ER right now. Um, And if you add all those deaths up, there are about three to four times the number of possible deaths from COVID-19. And so, you know, what a lot of countries did, they did lockdown and then they had widespread testing and then they opened up society so things could begin to get back to normal. Well, we didn't do that because there's no widespread testing of either antibodies or the virus enough to know what we're doing. But at the same time, because of that, people are wanting to extend into 2021. Some people are saying 2022 aspects of this lockdown. Well, that will leave our economy in ashes. And if you're a public health official, You can't just look at one metric, i.e. COVID-19 deaths. You've also got to look at all the people who are going to die from alcoholism, suicide, murder, wife beatings, heart attacks, strokes, poverty, not getting medical care, on and on and on and on and on. And when you add all those up, you end up getting a number from what we're doing to respond to the virus that far exceeds the worst possible estimates of deaths from the virus if we even let it run amok. So it's probably the most poorly managed crisis that I've observed in my lifetime. And I was born in 1955. And How would you have done it? How would you have done it? Would you have taken a Sweden approach? The, um, yes, a modified Sweden approach where there would have been through the Defense Authorization Act, massive standing up of testing for both the virus and antibodies so we would know exactly where it is, contain it, but then let the the rest of society function as normally as possible. Uh, For example, in Sweden, it's against the law not to send your children to school. And what I'm seeing in our, I have nine grandchildren. I have a 10th on the way. And what I'm seeing is that we're, we're, and even though there, you know, in, in the uh, flu season a couple of years ago, 172 children died of the flu. There have only been three CDC reported deaths of children from coronavirus. So we have to figure a way to do this in a smart way. But to do it in a smart way, we would have to stand up competence from federal and state governments to do ubiquitous testing. And we haven't done that. We squandered four months since January. And by the way, the people I know in the military, uh, uh, the people with PhDs in biological warfare, this was on their radar in December of 2019. And it was known now, it's been proven now that the virus was loose in our society in December of 2019 in Europe and the United States. So we've lost four months where we should have stood up that capability and infrastructure. 
But if we if we stay on the path we're on with this is open-ended lockdown, the number of deaths from poverty and unemployment, and I think frankly, we'll enter into something worse than the Great Depression if we're not careful. That that, that the my mother grew up during the Great Depression. And the, the consequences of that and the death from that would be greater than uh, from the virus itself. So now the other concern I have as someone who's you know, my, my mother's family were the unfortunate early losers in the Revolutionary War with the British and were the first prisoner of war with the British <laughs> in, in the Pennsylvania Dutch. And, and what 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 I'm looking at is what happens well, like I was at my home in DC recently at the Safeway in a nice neighborhood, there were a cluster of army national guard people and a phalanx of police at the, to go buy your bread. So the concern I have is this virus being used to engage in excessive police state tactics that suspend freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom, all kinds of freedoms, and freedom to make a living, and freedom to have the pursuit of happiness. Now, is there a balance that needs to be struck? Absolutely. We need widespread, ubiquitous testing, contact tracing, while we open society up, and that is what should have happened beginning in January. The ball got dropped in January, February, March, April, we've still dropped that ball. I'm just being blunt with you uh, as, a, as an emergency doctor. And there are other emergency doctors who have said the same thing, but their videos have been banned off of YouTube. Yeah, and plenty of them. Do you believe there's an element of Project Mockingbird taking place or no? 100%. Oh, so let me, do you think any, any uh, 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 commentators, any of these major uh, anchors that you see on CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, any of these guys, do you think any of them could potentially be also CIA agents or no? They don't know about it. It's behind the scenes executives. Well, the way that works is that you're talking about the teleprompter junkies, <laughs> monkeys. I mean, they're the ones reading. They're the ones, the, the, the ones, the editors, the national security and key editors that decide this story runs, this story doesn't. That's the control point, not the people who are the, the, the talent, let's call it, that's on the camera. So it's the t it's the control system behind the camera and the editors and who decides what story is run and what isn't. Who writes that? How, mu how much of what's said is, uh, is uh, what the uh, uh, anchor takes ownership with and how much of it is the editor that wrote it and he's simply reading it or she's reading it? Well, both is happening, uh, obviously. But the, who the, 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 what's decided to be on that program goes through a filter. And that's where you get into the problem. Now, I think some, there have been on all the networks, some physicians and others that have surfaced and said, here's what we need to be doing. And there are others who have said, look what's going on in Sweden. Uh, they may have herd immunity by June or July. What I think in the United States, we have the worst of both worlds. Because we, we on the one hand, we have a lockdown situation and a suspension of normal activities that have suspended basic individual and civil rights and business and has had massive economic damage. But at the same time, we haven't done what, let's say, China and other, like a, a authoritarian regime like China, 
uh, was able to lock and then test and trace everything. But even democracies like Germany or Portugal, for, for that matter, uh, or uh, uh, South Korea, they were able to do very widespread testing. And you know, here we have the United States, a medical superpower, a technological superpower, a financial superpower, fumbling around uh, incompetently. For example, a lot of people don't know that in nursing homes, if someone starts having symptoms of COVID-19, that test that they will get for that person is considered a priority two, which means it takes eight to 10 days to get the results back. But that's where most of the deaths are happening, is it's sweeping through elderly and sick populations. So almost all of the policies that have been enforced to manage this pandemic have been upside down. I'm just, unfortunately, I'm sorry to vent on your show like this, but I'm just outraged by it, frankly, as a doctor. I, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, I, I'm curious to know from somebody in your world. By the way, a quick uh, rundown here with Alien Movies. How much of it is fiction? How much of it is real? And how much of it has some truth behind it? Men in Black. 99% uh, fiction. 99% fiction. Aliens, the movie. 100% fiction. I know. Independence. <laughs> Independence Day. Uh, that's scripted right out of central casting at CIA because they want everyone to unite around an alien threat, and that's a hoax. Signs. I never saw it. Oh, really? I, I think you ought to see it. It's it's yeah. very it's, it's it has a lot to do with one of the five uh, uh, encounters. It's, yeah. uh, it's interesting. Uh, Cloverfield. Mm -hmm. I don't know. This I can tell you that I can tell you that close encounters are the third kind was a docudrama. I have but, it on here as well. Yeah. What, what do you think about the movie Star Trek? Are you a fan of it? Oh, they're fun. I mean, you know, I mean, of course, it's sort of an anthropomorphic projection. We're basically projecting the human condition out in space with, you know, cowboys and Indians shooting at each other and all that. I think it's, it's you know, it's great fantasy. I don't think there's any legitimacy to what the, the way things actually are. Are you, are you more a Trekkie or are you more a Star Wars uh, guy yourself? Well, it's, they're all science fiction and they all have their pluses and minuses. I kind of like the whole Yoda. Uh, if you look at the Jedi mind trick, I mean, there, there's a lot of cool stuff that George Lucas worked into that. Uh, just like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, you did say some of the aliens you met are two feet tall. So, I mean, you know, that he kind of fits the uh, description. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, You've done these C five events that you do, and and, and uh, folks come from all over the world. Who are some of the most mentionable names that uh, have come through? Politicians, uh, wealthy folks, celebrities, you know, that you can mention their names. Anybody that comes to those events with you? Well, I, I wouldn't want to name folks like that. Uh, I mentioned David Marconi, who's a renowned in, in, writer. In, in the state. Um, you know, uh, the 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 actor that played in Babe, um, Jamie Cromwell. Uh, he's been out with us and we had a massive object come over us near Palm Springs in California. Um, he actually sort of played me in the Star Trek movie First Contact. It's a little funny story. He was going to do the opening for that Star Trek movie, First Contact, where the human first made contact. And he was sort of used what I had been doing as an inspiration for his role. And when the, uh, at the premiere in London, Prince Charles was going to come and had communicated that he wanted to get the briefing document I had put together for the president. So I gave it to Jamie Cromwell, who in the reception line gave it to Prince Charles. And I got a lovely note back from 
Prince Charles about it. That's uh, Prince, Prince Charles and Prince Philip are very interested in all this. Yeah, there's some there's some big names. I mean, uh, I have lists here of Churchill. Uh, uh, oh yes, obviously Jimmy Carter. Uh, yes. You know, you got some of the people in Hollywood: Katy Perry, Megan Fox, Shatner. Yep. Stephen Hawking, Ridley Scott, uh, uh, there's a lot, Bill Nye, a lot of folks that are uh, believers of it. So it's not like it's a small community here. Uh, by the way, for somebody that's a doctor, are you, uh, what are your thoughts on vaccines? Any, any opinions on vaccines yourself or no? Well, I think that most people have, there have been vaccines that have problems. I think a lot of those have been resolved. I think it's very dangerous for our children not to get vaccinated for the worst sort of communicable diseases that are out there. Uh, I came up in an era when we didn't have a measles vaccine. We didn't have a, a lot of the ones we take for granted now. There were a lot of children who were killed and harmed. I had the worst case of measles and chickenpox our pediatrician had ever seen. Uh, Yourself? Myself, yeah, I almost died. So, I, I, you know, these are, these are fearsome uh, diseases. So, what happens with this is that there are some bad outcomes and, but then the whole baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And I think we need to be careful, but we do need transparency about which vaccines have had what side effects. And a lot of times big profit centered pharmaceutical companies will minimize that. And we know the FDA is utterly incompetent uh, to look out after these things, frankly. So, uh, and so is the CDC. I mean, look how they've managed this crisis. I mean, I've never seen such incompetence. Uh, but, uh, ouch. But, I mean, you ask my opinion, you know, I'm not going to coach. No, I, I, I thought it was great. And by the way, if they come up with a coronavirus vaccine, would you take it yourself? Uh, actually, I think in January I actually had COVID-19. I'm waiting to see if I can get an antibody test. But I had every symptom you would expect. Um, and so I, I predict that I have a pretty high titer. You're June 28, 1955, right? I, I right. Think yeah, I'll be 65 so, in June. Yeah. So, so you're you're in that age range that there's sometimes concern about. They say 70 plus, but I was just wondering. You don't seem like you were too concerned about it. Uh, well, I mean, I mountain bike 60 miles a week and hike 20 miles a week and bench press 400 pounds and I'm in the gym when it's open all the time. And are the you guys are in their, like, the guys like, in their like, 20s have a hard time keeping up with me. So I'm not your classic 60 something. I'm more like a 40 year old that's 60 something. I'm impressed. But by the way, you're also a good smack talker. You know, the way you said it, you were like, listen, you know, 400 pounds. Did you see how he said it? Like I bench yeah. 400 pounds and uh, uh, I bet not a lot of people want to uh, go against a uh, doctor that's mentioned 400 pounds. <laughs> Speed round. I'll give you a name or a topic. Just give me one word that comes to mind. Bob Lazar. True. Okay. Uh, uh, Storm Area 51. Fantasy. X-Files. Fantasy. David uh, Fravor. Honestly, don't know. Okay. Steven Spielberg. Brilliant. Uh, Interstellar. Excellent. Frank Tipler. Don't know. Sarah Seeger. No. Don't know. Dr. Harold Pothoff. Oh, put off. Put off. Intelligence operative. Travis Walton. Misrepresented by Hollywood. He had a real experience, but it was misrepresented by Hollywood. Helen Sharma. Don't know. Don't know. Trump. Aspirational. Aspirational. Hillary Clinton. Past. Past. Okay. Fauci. Misguided. 
CDC. Incompetent. You've been amazing. This has been an incredible conversation. Thank and you. again, Dr. Uh, uh, Greer, I appreciate you for coming out and spending a couple hours with us. Uh, I feel smarter uh, for having spent the last two hours with you. Once again, thank you for being a guest on Valuetainment. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.